as well. All right, we're in Ezekiel. We're in chapters 29 through 32 tonight. It's not that big of a deal. No, you know, we'll be here for the regular amount of time. So we're just going to go a little bit faster. It's an entire section about Egypt, and so we're calling our study Egypt in Denial. It's, it's not original, but you've heard that. It's, in, it's from one of the Disney cartoons, isn't it? They're, who? Jungle Cruise. Oh, the Jungle Cruise. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah okay. I knew it was Disney. Egypt in Denial. Uh, so chapter 29. More times than not, the big game or the big fight turn, uh, turn out to be lopsided disappointments. Something like that played out on a national level in the 6th century B.C. between Egypt and Babylon. Egypt kept trying to assert itself, but in the end it was Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar that easily won the contest. And so, as I said, we're in a long section of Ezekiel that declares God's judgment against seven nations. In chapters 29 through 32, we come to a long section in that long section that deals entirely with the nation of Egypt. Egypt would flex its national muscles, but in the end, God would use Babylon to judge her. And so, as I said, we're going to take on these four chapters all at once. And in the interest of time, we're going to do it by highlighting some things in each chapter. So we'll skip some of the verses. It just so happens that in each chapter, there's a notable comparison. In chapter 29, Egypt's judgment is compared to the capturing of a crocodile. In chapter 30, Egypt's judgment is compared to the breaking of both arms. In chapter 31, Egypt's judgment is compared to the felling of a great cedar tree. And in chapter 32, Egypt's judgment is compared to the trapping of animals. So let's start in chapter 29 with the great monster, the crocodile. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own, and I have made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness you and all the fish of your rivers, you shall fall on the open field, you shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heavens. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord, because they have been a staff of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their backs quiver." And so the great monster that's spoken of here, probably a reference to a giant croc there in the Nile River. They're famous for that. It's a fitting image. Pharaoh thought of himself and the nation of Egypt as a great crocodile, as it were, ruling the Nile. God's assessment of him was that he was nothing more than a reed growing in the Nile. So this is a tremendously prophetic but also poetic section where God is saying, hey, I'm, you know, the, the Pharaoh would compare himself to a crocodile, the king of the river as it was. He even thinks he made the river, uh, you know, worshiping his gods and all. But to me, he's nothing more than a reed 
in that river and I'm going to show you just how weak he is. The Lord would hook him and pluck him from the river with ease. The fish that stick to his scales mean all the satellite nations that uh, are allied with Egypt who would also be overrun with her. Now, historically, Israel had looked to Egypt for aid to help them repel the Babylonians. God had told them through Jeremiah not to trust Egypt. Don't look to Egypt for help. God had decreed that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years and they were supposed to submit to it as His discipline. It's kind of like when your kids, you give them a discipline and you say, now please, you know, you're begging them in your heart, please just submit to this so that things don't have to get worse. I mean, you've earned your discipline, hang out, you know, and stuff, and then, then you go in the room, you know, it's time out and the window's open and they're gone and stuff, you know. But, and then you think, well, now this has gotten more serious. Now, you should have just stayed in your room. Everything would have been fine, but now we're, we're in some serious trouble here. Uh, not a personal experience, by the way. I've heard these things. Uh, so anyway, it, turning to Egypt, it only made things worse. When Nebuchadnezzar had Jerusalem surrounded, Egypt dispatched an army to contest the Babylonians. It did draw Nebuchadnezzar off for a time, but the Egyptian army was easily defeated. And Egypt did prove to be a weak help, a reed, which when leaned upon quickly gave way. So the Jews, they went against God's uh, advice. They decided to trust in Egypt. But when they leaned upon Egypt for help, it was as if you were putting your whole weight on a reed that broke. You You ever think something is strong enough to hold you? Uh, and then all of a sudden it's not and you're, you fall and make a fool of yourself and people laugh at you and that is a personal experience, by the way. Uh, but uh, So, you know, you have to be careful about those kinds of things. Now, there are things in the world that we ought not to trust for our help in time of need. I, I think probably still the best example that we could all relate to would be psychological therapies and treatments that have their foundation in the godless philosophies of men like Freud and Jung and Skinner and Rogers and Maslow. These are the, the big, you know, one, two, three, four, five, the big five I couldn't count, uh, uh, you know, in uh, uh, psych- psychology and psychotherapy. These guys are, are absolutely godless they're, and beyond godless, they're God-hating men. And they spin out these, what are essentially philosophies of human behavior based on a false view of what it means to be human. And they turn out to be nothing more than reeds which always break when leaned upon. Uh, and so people go for this, these kinds of therapies and this kind of help. And the people, I mean, they really need help. People really need help. Have you noticed that? You and I need help. We're just de- in denial about it. But uh, get it? See how I twist and turn that, get that in there? But anyway, uh, you know, people need help. And, and they look to these professionals with their degrees for help. I remember when I was at UC Riverside studying behavioral psychology. I asked my professor which of the major schools of psychology had the highest success rate. I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not really married to any particular philosophy here. I'm kind of, kind of like B.F. Skinner, you know, just the straight behavioralism. I was drawn to that. But I thought, well, you know, if you really want to help people, you should choose the one that really helps people, right? I mean, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if people come in and say, I need help, you think, well, this is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this one that really helps you. And so I asked my professor, in fact, I asked several professors, 
And they all said the same thing. The success rate of psychotherapies was terrible. It was something less than 10% of people are actually helped by going to professionals. I also remember a study, a real scientific study, not something that was made up, that showed people are helped just as much by talking to their family and friends about their problems as they are talking to a therapist alone. And so if you have trouble, you don't have organic brain damage, you don't have chemical imbalances, you're just like everybody else, you're just having a hard time, you're in distress, you're, you're just, you know, whatever it might be, you'd call it depression, we'd call it distress or discontent. Come to church, talk to people. Talk to family and friends. Have people pray with you. Save money. Because you will be more helped than you will if you go to a professional counselor. Only God can discern between the soul and the spirit. He, only God can help you. Only God can heal you. Only God can make you whole. And He chooses to do it so often through the fellowship of the believers. And so, uh, you know, we're, we would never tell you to do anything that is uh, uh, detrimental for you. Or, you know, but these, these therapies, they just don't work. They, they're, they are proven false. And they start from a, because they start from a false premise about what it means to be a human being and they leave out God. As I was talking about on Sunday, they don't take into account that you and I have eternity in our hearts and that there is a longing to know the living God through Jesus Christ. Uh, they can't offer anything other than uh, a reed. A couple of other things to note in chapter 29 before we cruise into chapter 30. In verse 8, the Lord says He will bring a sword upon Egypt. Egyptian mythology often depicted a God putting a sword in the hand of the Pharaoh. They needed to recognize that it is God who raises up nations. He gives the sword to nations for a time. He alone is God and Babylon would be His sword against Pharaoh. And so you can have all the hieroglyphics you want about these crazy cat-like gods, you know, giving uh, swords to the Egyptian Pharaohs. But God said, no, I'm the sword. I'm the giver of swords and Babylon's going to be cutting you down. Verses 12 through 16, we're told that Egypt would be overrun for a period of 40 years, but then restored, but never to her former glory. Now, historical documents for this period of time are scarce, as you can imagine. Babylonian records, however, indicate that Nebuchadnezzar did subjugate Egypt and take many captives. When the Persians defeated the Babylonians, it was the policy of Persia to let other nations coexist as long as they were tribute nations. And so Egypt was at that time restored, but history has shown from that point until now, Egypt never has regained its former glory. Egypt's a, you know, a wonderful nation, I guess. You know, they've got the pyramids and the, the Sphinx, which is, I think, about the size of a salt shaker. If you, no. you, you, you ever, I used to think the Sphinx was really big, but it's not that big. How many of you have seen the Sphinx? Anybody been to Egypt and seen the Sphinx? It's not really that big. It's, it's not as big as you might think. But anyway, Egypt has never been restored to its former glory uh, and it never will. Now, in chapter 30, Egypt's judgment is compared to the breaking of both arms. Verse 20, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on it to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
I will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken. I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of of Egypt, I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the date here is around April 29, 587 B.C. This is four months after Ezekiel's first prophecy against Egypt. The first prophecy signified the time when the forces of Egypt went out to contest Babylon. This prophecy was recorded after the Babylonians defeated Egypt and had, in a sense, broken their one arm. The Pharaoh here, I'm told, is a guy named Hophra, not Hoffa. <laughs> anyway, Hophra, who ruled Egypt from 589 B.C. to 570 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar broke the arm of Egypt so she was unable to defend Judah. Egypt's arm, symbolizing strength, was not even put in a splint so as to become strong enough to hold a sword. In other words, once Nebuchadnezzar defeated uh, Pharaoh, uh, then it, and he went back and he took care of Jerusalem and then he went back a few years later and he finished off Egypt. Uh, the teaching in context is that God is in control of history. He oversees the nations, strengthening those he sees fit in order to accomplish his divine providence. For us as a nation, it means we can't count on our founding or our form of government or our military might or our material prosperity or our technological superiority. I'm happy for all of those things. I'm blessed by them, but we shouldn't count on them. In the final scheme of things, it is righteousness that exalts a nation. Righteousness right now. We must turn to God from idols in our nation to remain a strong nation, a viable nation. Now, in chapter 31, Egypt's judgment is compared to the felling of a great tree. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 31. Now it came to pass on the eleventh year in the third month on the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, and its top was among the thick boughs. The waters made it grow. Underground waters gave it height with their rivers running around the place where it was planted and sent out rivulets to all the trees of the field. <clears throat> Therefore, its height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Its boughs were multiplied and its branches became long because of the abundance of water as it sent them out. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young. And in its shadow, all great nations made their home. Thus it was beautiful in greatness and in the length of its branches because its roots reached to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. The date now is about June 21st, 587 B.C. It's less than two months after the prophecy of chapter 30, Ezekiel compared Egypt to Assyria, 
while comparing Assyria to a great growing cedar tree. Now, it makes sense to compare Egypt to Assyria. Assyria had invaded Egypt and the Egyptians knew the strength of the Assyrian Empire. In 633 B.C., the Assyrians had attacked the capital city of Thebes, but for all their strength, God had brought Assyria to an end. The Babylonians had conquered her, and now they would likewise conquer Egypt. If you're Egypt, you've got to you know, quit being so proud about who you are. The Assyrian Empire had conquered you, had come into your you know, you know, city and, and raised it, and then God destroyed them using the Babylonians. The Babylonians are still hanging around. Uh, you've got nothing to be proud of and a lot to be worried about. It's time for repentance, but instead they grew proud. So Ezekiel then compared Assyria to a cedar in Lebanon. Several key cities of Assyria were situated at or near the Tigris River, which provided much needed water. Thus situated, Assyria grew like a cedar nourished by waters. Birds in the cedar's branches... Animals under its shade speak of Assyria like a tall tree overshadowing and protecting all of its tributary nations. <clears throat> the reference to the trees of Eden is considered a literary exaggeration to show how grand the Assyrian Empire had become. God allowed them to become a great empire, but it was at His hand. It was a perfect example to show Egypt how far she too would fall. And so verse 10 of chapter 31 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and it set its top among the thick boughs and its heart was lifted up in its height. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. Aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land. And all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. On its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens and all the beasts of the field will come to its branches so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height nor set their tops among the thick boughs that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them for they have all been delivered to death to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God in the day when it went down to hell I caused mourning, I covered the deep because of it I restrained its rivers and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nation shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descend into the pit and all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell with it and those slain by the sword and those who were uh, its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations to which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. And so God had ordained Assyria's uh, rise and its fall. You can read all about it in the Old Testament book of Nahum. The city of Nineveh fell to Nabopolassar who was Nebuchadnezzar's father in about 612 B.C. And the rest of the Assyrian army was crushed by Nebuchadnezzar himself in 609 B.C. And so God was saying, hey, look at Assyria. They've already defeated you once. Babylonians defeated them. Babylonians are coming for you. Assyria's sin was pride. Egypt's sin was pride. Later, Nebuchadnezzar's sin would be pride. 
God would cut him down like a tree, causing him to be driven out to the fields for seven seasons to graze like a wild beast. Note to self, avoid pride. But how? Well, the way to defeat pride is, I think, to understand humility. One way we define humility is by saying you have a proper view of yourself. But in another sense, humility is not primarily an attitude toward or about myself at all. It's really an attitude about God. One author put it like this. I like this quote. He said, Humility is an elusive virtue. As soon as you think you've got it, you don't. That's part of the problem. When I finally achieve humility, I get proud of it. My humility cries out for recognition. Humility is terribly fragile. Part of the reason for this elusiveness is that humility has a difficult time coexisting with self-awareness. True humility comes when we are consumed with awareness of another. And so, in a sense, I understand it's having a proper understanding of who I am, but better than that, it is to just have an understanding of who God is. And that keeps me thinking about the Lord rather than myself. True humility is an acknowledgement that I must depend upon God for all things. It's to understand my total inability to do anything for God apart from His grace. And quite honestly, if I'm honest with myself, I sort of think that I can do some things, you know, for God. Uh, that I don't always need His help as much, you know. And, and I mean, I don't mean that in a flippant way or a light, but just if you're honest, sometimes you think, well, I've got this, God. I'm okay here. You know, this big thing that's coming up over here, I'm going to need your help on it. So rest up. But in the meantime, I've got this. You know, this is something, done this before. You know, this is like clockwork. I do this every week. I'm a greeter. I'm in the Sunday school. I'm the pastor. I'm under, I've got this. I've got this. I could use your help a little bit here if I start to stump. But, you know, generally I've got this. And we need to continue to have the attitude that I, I really can't do anything spiritual and valuable without the Lord's help. I can't, I, unless I have His grace flowing through me, whatever I'm going to do is going to uh, fail ultimately. Humility isn't denying a gifting or a calling you have, but it's admitting that those things are from God and the power comes through you and not from you. Now, the great Bible passage on humility, of course, is Philippians 2, 5 through 8, where Jesus is described as taking upon Himself the nature of a servant and humbling Himself in dependence upon the Father, even unto the death of the cross. And so the best way to understand humility is to see the life of Jesus Christ, to study Him, to follow Him in His walk on the earth. I remember, I forget who said this one time, but it was, it's always stuck with me. One of the guys I was listening to teaches the Bible. He was saying that you can, you can listen to a lot of Bible studies, and they're good Bible studies, but oftentimes the name of Jesus is not even mentioned. And I understand, you know, you might be in the context of an Old Testament scripture or something that's more narrative or historic or all that, but it's e it sounds funny, but it's easy to forget that the Bible is about Jesus, that it's the story of His coming into the world. Right there in the book of Genesis, uh, almost right from the beginning, right? And at the fall of man, God says, I'm coming. You, you've ruined everything, but that, I'm coming. I'm going to come into your reality. And the rest of the story is how we get Jesus uh, the God-man and, and how all that redemption plays out. And so, if necessary, we need to make a conscious effort to mention Jesus and to remember, oh yeah, I, 
this is a great Bible study perhaps or I'm doing this information and this is necessary but if it's not about Jesus Christ, if it doesn't point to Him, if it doesn't send our heart His way, uh, it's not doing what it ought to do. Uh, two qualities you might say uh, that measure true biblical humility are submission to authority and servanthood. Those are the two things that come out of Philippians chapter 2 there. Jesus submitted to the authority of the Father and He served. If I am not joyfully submitted to authority, whatever authority God's put over me, in the home, in the community, in the church, in my nation, I am not really humble. And if I'm not gracefully serving others, that I'm not humble. And guess what? If I'm not humble, what am I? I'm proud to a certain measure because I think that I can do it better, that I shouldn't be treated this way, I, I, I. And so I, I've got to quit having all of that I trouble and just see myself as Jesus did, submitted to the authority of His Father. And I mean, it, it blows my mind that Jesus grew up in a home for all those years submitted to the authority of earthly parents. I mean, think about it. it it's crazy. Submitted to the authority of the Roman government. Submitted to the authority of the, the religious leaders. Uh, and, and yet, that submission, such a beautiful thing, as we see Him there stooping to wash the disciples' feet. Submitted to authority and serving. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve. And He's the consummate servant. That passage again in Philippians 2 where uh, it talks about Him, you know, not uh, thinking it robbery to be equal with God, but, you know, taking upon the form of a servant. And then He illustrates that on the night He washes the disciples' feet. He gets up, He takes off His outer garment, He girds Himself, He washes their feet, and He puts His garment back on. And it's an illustration for them. I don't know if they got it at the time. It's an illustration of Him coming from heaven, divesting Himself of His deity, serving mankind, and then in His resurrection, taking that deity upon Himself again. Always the God-man. Jesus never ceased to be God, but He determined not to appeal to His divinity, His deity. He simply did what His Father told Him to do as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's our example. Now, in chapter 32, Egypt's judgment is compared to the trapping of animals. Verse 1, came to pass in the twelfth year and the twelfth month on the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You're like a young lion among the nations, and you're like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet, and fouling the rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with a company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. Then I will leave you on the land. I will cast you out on the open fields and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heavens. And with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and I will fill the valley with your carcass. March 3rd, 585 B.C., two months after the news of Jerusalem's fall had reached the captives in Babylon, the fall of Egypt was now so certain that Ezekiel was told to take up a lament concerning Pharaoh. As you know, a lament is a funeral song usually delivered at the time of burial. But Ezekiel's told to sing it now because Egypt was bent for destruction. In addition to being compared to a crocodile again, Egypt is compared to a lion. Then in verse 13, a mention is made of the destruction of all 
its animals. And so the picture here is of God as a great hunter or a trapper catching them in his net. A final word is given beginning in verses 17 and 18. It says, And it came to pass also in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt, cast them down to the depths of the earth, her and the daughters of the famous nations, with those who go down to the pit. This is March 17, 585 B.C., exactly two weeks after the preceding message. This message's theme is the consignment of the hosts of Egypt to what's called the pit, language that indicated her physical destruction would pale in comparison to being separated from God in the afterlife. You see, when we talk about the destruction of these nations, you know, the Babylonians coming in and taking captives and burning buildings and all that, it's nothing compared to the fact that these are unbelievers, non-believers, who in death are being consigned to Hades to await the second death, the resurrection of the damned and thrown into the lake of fire. And so... God is making that clear. God will catch Egypt in his net and throw her into the pit. This is reminiscent of another lion, at least to me. Satan is described, is he not, as a roaring lion. During the great tribulation, he will have his way on the earth, go about devouring. But when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming, Satan will be easily caught and cast into the bottomless pit. And then later, after the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth, He'll be released, but then caught and thrown for eternity into the lake of fire. Meantime, we're told to resist him. How? Uh, It's in James 4, 6, and 7. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. These are just the same things we've been talking about. Humility as measured by submission to God. Since the devil's sin was pride, humility always confounds him. It always defeats him. He can't understand it. It's a spiritual language he can't handle. The the devil doesn't understand humility. Have you ever, ever thought how stupid could the devil be to allow Jesus to die on the cross? Did you ever think about that? God was talking all the way back in Genesis about, I'm going to come, I'm going to die. And, you know... Here, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Here's the rock. Here's Abraham and Isaac. Uh, you know, I'm going to stop Abraham from killing Isaac, but I'm going to kill my own son in this same place. And then the devil he gets all excited about crucifying Jesus. He thinks he's won a great victory, only to find out that he's been totally defeated. And, and, and it's all over for him now. It's because he can't understand anything but pride. And so when you and I walk in humility... It confounds him. It defeats him. It releases spiritual power into our lives that is unbelievable. Uh, and, and so, humble yourself. Submit to God. Stay humble, dependent upon the grace of God. Take a measure of yourself to see if you are joyfully submitted to authority and graciously serving others. Amen? All right.